Hello everyone, I hope you're well and welcome to All About Fertility Podcast. I'm Ella, your host. Today we're doing things slightly differently and we're changing the format because today we're having a podcast takeover. What's a podcast takeover, I hear you asking? Well, it's where I hand over the reins to another organisation that we support and that are doing great things for the fertility community, Access Australia. And today I have Marie Pickens, who is Access Australia's CEO, and we'll be discussing your IVF success website, which is the government's new initiative that supports women on their IVF journey. But before we jump into today's podcast, Marie, I would love it if you could introduce yourself and tell us a bit about Access Australia. Love to, Ella. Actually, I'm an IVF mum myself. In fact, my daughter just turned 16 last week. She's a feisty one. (laughs) (laughs) When my husband and I were going through IVF 20 years ago, three long years of treatments, four gruelling egg collection cycles and eight embryo transfers, I grew quite disconsolate until that very last round of treatment when we were finally successful. And I was so grateful, forever grateful in fact, about the difference IVF had made to helping us have a family together, that I became very passionate in speaking up for those also seeking treatment to be able to have a family of their own. And so I got involved with Access Australia. It's an organisation that is a charity, it is consumer controlled, and it's independent. It's committed to being a voice for anyone who needs medical assistance to have a family be it that uh, someone's got a medical condition or they're single or in their same-sex relationship, whatever brings them to the doors of a fertility clinic seeking help, Access Australia is their voice with government, with the IVF clinical industry, as well as researchers and the regulatory authorities. And that led to me as the CEO of Access Australia being invited to be the patient voice on the expert committee for developing the Your IVF Success website. And I'm delighted that we're able to have this podcast today. Well, we're delighted to have you here and thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. So let's just jump straight in. Now, the Your IVF Success website was recently launched and we're delighted to have two key people instrumental in the development of the site with us here today, Professor Georgina Chambers and Professor Peter Illingworth. Georgina, your team was responsible for building the Your IVF Success website. Tell us about your team and your role in developing the the site. Thanks, Marie. Yes, we're very proud of the Your IVF Success website. Um, I'm the Director of the National Perinatal Epidemiology and Statistics Unit at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Part of my role is to look after Australia's IVF registry, and it's called the Australian and New Zealand Assisted Reproductive Technology Database. And we collect information about all IVF cycles performed in Australia. Because of this role and the long history that the National Perinatal Statistics Unit has in reporting IVF outcomes, the government funded our unit to create the Your IVF Success website. 
That's terrific to hear. So there's been a long history of collecting this data and now it's made available to the public through this website. So it's really good to know that we had a variety of fertility clinicians on the expert working committee helping advise you and your team. Peter, you're a fertility clinician and one of the several fertility clinicians we had on the expert working committee. What has been your key focus in the development of the website? There were really two aims. One was to provide information that was meaningful and relevant for patients who are looking at this data and trying to interpret it and understand it. The second is also to present the data in a way that does not distort clinical practice. There are many different ways of doing IVF, and it's very important that any data that represents the success or otherwise of IVF clinics, it fairly represents different approaches to IVF and doesn't distort the way in which doctors treat their patients. That's really good to hear. That helps us get a bit of perspective of how the fertility clinicians were looking at the use of the site and, of course, the statistics that underpin it, which comes from Georgina's team. So it's fabulous to have both of you as our experts on our podcast today, but the site is designed for patients. So it's important that we have a patient perspective. And I'm really thrilled that Ella represents patients here today. Now, Ella, a lot of new people will be listening to this podcast and hearing about you for the first time. Tell us what role you played in your IVF success site web de- website development. Marie, I am also an IVF mum to a gorgeous three-year-old. And I had the pleasure of being a part of the patient focus group in the early development of the website. Now, I also helped with the recruitment of other patients who were thinking about IVF or had experience with IVF to be a part of the focus group. It was such an exciting time to be a part of this initiative because it was a tool that would help someone along in their fertility journey and I was happy to be a part of it. Well, we thank you, Ella, for all the help you gave us in helping recruit patients for the focus groups and the one-on-one interviews because they really helped us shape the look and feel of the site as well as ensured key topics they were interested in seeing were being covered in the site. Now, the site's been launched. It's been now about two weeks. And just how popular has the site been since it was launched? Georgina, how many people have visited the site so far? Well, in the first 10 days, um, almost 30,000 individuals have visited the site. And many of them have um, returned uh, quite a few times to look through the different aspects um, that are offered on the site. And pleasingly, the majority of people that access the site are totally engaging with it and using the various tools available to them on there. That's impressive. That's really good to hear. So many people have visited the site and they haven't just had a quick look and disappeared. They've taken the time to explore the site. It just goes to show that there are a lot of people out there who are interested in this information. Now, though data on success rates nationally have been published annually for many years, this is the first time we've had an IVF success estimator for individuals and individual success rates. Georgina, why now have this tool? How did this site actually come about? 
Well, IVF has um, been operational in Australia for almost 40 years, and it's helped hundreds of thousands of, of Australians become parents. Um, but you're right, until now, there's been no easy way for patients to access information about the 80-odd the fertility clinics that operate in Australia, um, to compare the um, success rates between those clinics. And there's also been no way for individuals to get an a estimate of their chances of IVF success um, by an online tool. And they're the two aspects that we offer on the site. One is a, com a comparison of IVF clinics, whereby you can search for every IVF clinic operating in Australia and get the same information and measures of success on those um, clinics. But the second part of it is what we call the IVF estimator, where you can um, enter individual characteristics about yourself and your partner, if you have one, um, and it'll give you an estimate of your overall chances of success. The reason that the website came about now is because there has been a call for, for more information, as I said, about IVF in Australia. But late last year, um, a senator from South Australia, Senator Sterling Griff, put a proposal to the Senate to um, provide more information for consumers. And as a result of that, the Commonwealth Government funded my unit, the National Perinatal Statistics Unit, to develop this website. Thanks for uh, giving us um, that insight. I know that 16 years ago, um, certainly my husband and I would have really appreciated having a tool like this available. Peter, you know, the government um, funded this website and that's just terrific to have the backing, uh, financial backing from the government. But how is the data on this site different to the data that clinics have already been publishing on their websites, some for many years? It's different in two ways. Currently, every clinic will publish success rates on the website, but every clinic will use slightly different measures, different age groups. So if a consumer is looking around different websites, trying to work out what the success rate is for a given clinic, they're comparing apples with oranges at every site. And it's very, very confusing when one group's reporting from 35 to 40 and one other group's reporting from 32 to 36. The second thing that's important is that each clinic uses different measures published on their website. Here, the measures are standard. A further advantage is that the data has been validated and the calculations have all been done independently. It's very easy for clinics to use slightly different calculations to make their success rates look better on their websites, but that doesn't help a consumer in comparing one clinic with another. Whereas the new website, by using standard measures with all the calculations done by Georgina's expert team at the University of New South Wales, means that consumers can be sure that these calculations have been done independently from verified data that has been sent in and that the, the measures will all be the same for each clinic. That makes it a lot clearer. Thank you, Peter. Well, now that we have a, a better understanding of what the site does in helping individuals estimate their own chance of success with IVF or to look at uh, individual clinics and their success rates. Let's focus on some of the burning issues that patients have raised since they've looked at the site. Uh, there's been a lot of chatter online about lifestyle factors, the importance of age, 
uh, why the data is from 2017 and the different types of people that seek IVF treatment and how do they go about using the site. So let's spend a bit of time looking at these particular issues in more detail. So my first question has to do with IVF, the, the IVF success estimator tool and the impact of lifestyle. Uh, first of all, can you explain exactly what this tool is and what does it do before we talk about lifestyle? Georgina, just a, a sure. quick overview of the tool. Sure. So as I said, there's two main tools to the website and the IVF success estimator works like an individual calculator for patients to predict their, their own chances of having an IVF baby, regardless of whether they're just thinking about um, having IVF or whether they're some way through their IVF journey and have had multiple cycles. So patients can enter information such as their age, the age of their partner, whether they already have children or how many IVF cycles they've already had, and even some information about those cycles. And then the predictor will estimate their chances of success in their next three cycles. The predictions are based on over 600,000 IVF cycles that have been undertaken in Australia between 2009 and 2017. So, so this tool is the most contemporary and comprehensive IVF prediction tool in the world. Wow. Imagine. That's fantastic that Australia has a world-leading tool like this. But a lot of people are surprised it doesn't cover additional lifestyle factors. Now, Ella, as a patient, what would you want to know from a tool like this? Well, Marie, lifestyle. Lifestyle played a huge part in my fertility journey the first time around and right now. Last year, I stopped drinking alcohol for the year. I started losing weight, lowering my BMI. I, I am eating healthy taking my supplements. I don't smoke, but I know the impacts that smoking has on my fertility and my health. And there's a lot of chatter online about your IVX success. And one of the areas women are discussing is lifestyle. And so I wonder why the website doesn't account for lifestyle. Well, I think that's a good question for Peter. As a fertility clinician, Peter, can you help us understand what impact does lifestyle have on fertility? And perhaps why aren't those factors really, well, we'll hear from Georgina in a minute about why they're not on the tool, but, but talk to us a bit more about the impact of lifestyle factors. Lifestyle factors are important, and that's a very good point, Ella, that you've made. Um, we know that, that women whose BMI is higher than 35 have a significantly lower chance of success from IVF. We know that, that men and women who smoke cigarettes have worse outcomes, both naturally and through IVF. And we know that, that other problems such as excessive use of alcohol or the use by a guy of anabolic steroids can have a serious impact on people's fertility as well as their general health. So clearly it's an important factor. The difficulty, as Georgina will allude, is how we capture that. Okay, so it's good to know these important lifestyle factors do have an impact on people's fertility and therefore their chances of success using IVF. So Georgina, uh, these factors aren't included at the moment. Can you help us understand why? And are you looking to include them in future updates of the website? Yes. And 
As Peter points out, there are a number of factors that influence the chance of IVF success. And we go to great lengths on the website to point out that a woman is not a statistic and every woman has her own circumstances and characteristics that she brings to the table and that somebody like uh, uh, Peter, a fertility clinician, can put all of this into context for her and her partner. But not all of these um, factors can be captured in an algorithm such as the estimator that we use. However, we do know that such factors as the period of infertility that, that a couple or a woman experiences, BMI, certain types of infertility, play an important role. So these in the future will be included in the estimator. But we have only started collecting some of these um, items, and it, such as BMI and period of infertility. And it takes us at least two years to collect enough data on these factors to include in the estimator. Um, we have to have sufficient amount of data to provide reliable and accurate estimates. And the last thing we want to do is include items on the estimator that may provide um, misleading information. And again, I go back to this is why we always recommend that, that um, visitors to the website, if they have any questions or want to know more, need to go and speak to their fertility doctor who can put it in context. At this stage, we aren't planning to include smoking and alcohol and, and stress levels in the calculator because um, these can vary quite a bit over time in somebody's life and they are difficult to interpret and collect in the context of other factors that influence success rates. Not taking away mm -hmm. from any of those, but they are best, best dealt with by an expert such as um, Peter Ellingworth. I, I'm really glad that you helped explain that, Georgina, because uh, it provides reassurance to patients that these lifestyle factors are important. It's just that they can't necessarily be entered in a statistical um, model mm. like the IVF success estimator tool. And you can't turn around and say, you know, today I've done this because, as you said, over time people have hopefully improved their lifestyle factors. Peter, just a, a quick word from you about uh, the importance of those lifestyle factors that you brought up that Georgina's explained aren't covered on the site. A few will be introduced in the future, such as relating to weight and body mass index or BMI. When a patient would come to you, for instance, to talk about the results on that they got from the estimator tool on the website, how might you go about helping them, them understand the importance of lifestyle factors? There's actually a bigger question wrapped into that, which is how would I interpret the findings using the predictor tool for an individual patient? Because each patient is slightly different. There are, as Georgina has alluded, uh, factors such as how long a couple have been trying, whether they've had a baby before, and their BMI. There are clear predictor factors that are not covered by the website at the moment. So I would place any interpretation of success rate in that context. So if, for instance, someone came to me who had had a baby a year earlier and had only just started trying for a second baby, their prospects of success are much higher than someone of the same age who's been trying for five years without ever achieving a pregnancy. 
So any doctor who is talking to a patient will factor all of that in. So if someone comes to me and they've got a problem with their weight, I would firstly explain that in a very sympathetic, empathetic way, first of all. But I would also explain that because their weight's a bit higher than other people's, their likelihood of success would expect to be a little bit lower than the figures published on the website. It, it just reinforces, I think, how important it is to have a look at what the website generates, but to uh, make sure that you discuss those results with the fertility experts so that they can better interpret it for you as an individual. And given some other uh, factors which are not available on the website at this time. Well, thank you both for giving us a bit more clarity around that topic. Let's move on and talk about another aspect of lifestyle, and that has to do with the types of relationships people might be in that are seeking IVF treatment. So many people who visit the website don't fit the mould of a what some people might call a traditional couple, a man and a woman trying to have a child together. This site just seems to focus on the traditional couple. There are a lot of people out there who are single women or they're in a same-sex relationship. Georgina, could you give us a bit more understanding about why the focus is more on this traditional couple? You're right, Marie. At the moment, the site is geared to female-male couples who are suffering from infertility and for women using their own eggs. This is currently the majority of patients undergoing IVF treatment, but it's certainly not the only patients um, seeking treatment. And we're seeing an increasing number of same-sex and single people seeking IVF treatment to create their families. So in recognition of this trend, we have started to collect a lot more information on relationship status and the intending parent status in ANSARD. But we've only started collecting this information since um, January 2020. So we only have one year of data. And as I explained uh, previously, we, we want to be really sure about the, the statistics and the information we provide on the website. So it'll be a, at least another year before we provide more, more information and more estimates for um, couples that are single or same sex. Um, However, many people in what might be called non-traditional relationships use donated eggs and sperm to create their families. And we've been collecting that information on, on donated eggs and embryos and sperm for some time now. And again, though, it will take some time for us to have enough information to include those sorts of variables or characteristics on our website. For example, in 2018, there were 3,000 cycles where women used donated eggs, but that only constitutes 3% of the cycles undertaken in Australia. So we need quite a few years of data to make reliable estimates. But we are looking to do that in the future, and that'll probably come into effect in the next year or two. Well, that's very encouraging to know that it's not, uh, that website's not designed just for this somewhat uh, uh, traditional, different view. <laughs> yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, we, we, this site needs to be inclusive, and it's yes. great to know that it will include people in different 
um, circumstances, different relationships as we move forward. And it's just a question of the quantity of data available for you to make reliable estimates. So it's, it's wonderful to know in the coming years, uh, every time the site is uh, updated, which I believe is once a year in the um, around the third quarter of the year, we can expect that there'll be new information and over time it will become even more inclusive of all relationship types. Now, Peter, to, right now though, there are people who are single or in same-sex relationships uh, that want to understand their chances of success. W what would you say to them if they were looking to use the site or they had and perhaps came to you with um, questions about the results that they got? I have many patients who are either single or in a same-sex male or female relationship, and they do come to me for this sort of advice. And the first thing I would say to them is that cycles for single women and women in a same-sex relationship are included in this data set, the same as anybody else's, because unlike donor eggs, cycles that involve donor sperm are included in these statistics. And I would say to them that the main principle that determines the outcome of a cycle, which is the age of the eggs, is the same for everybody, regardless of their gender or their relationship status. So that's the first thing they should look at. The second thing, though, I would say to them is that women who are single or in a same-sex relationship are slightly different from couples whose eggs have not been working for four or five years before they go to IVF. And therefore, they could expect that their own success rate would be slightly higher than the national average. But the general principles are the same, that these data apply to them. In particular, the comparisons between clinics are just as relevant for single women or same-sex couples as they are for a heterosexual couple trying to have a family together. So they should use the data freely because they are included in these data sets. That's good to know. So there's an opportunity here still for, for people, no matter their circumstances, to uh, explore the site. Again, understanding that they really should be taking any information they get back to their doctor and having frank discussion about how it applies to them and their own particular circumstances. Ella, I, I'd just like to ask you here, what does this mean to you, do you think, to patients like yourself and others that might uh, be looking at using the site and putting in their own details? It's great to hear that the data is inclusive, which is fantastic. However, if I'm looking at my details, and like many women, I am older. I had my daughter at 40 on my first attempt at IVF, and I'm trying for my second at 45. Now, there are many women like me over 42 using the estimator and getting a result of 2% or 1%, which can be really discouraging for someone to see. I can understand that. I myself, uh, after multiple attempts, uh, didn't conceive my daughter until I was 40. And yet the site doesn't seem to allow for even older people as easily. Look, Georgina, can you help us understand what are the uh, upper age limits that the site allows people to enter or to yeah. see the results of? How many, and, and keeping that in mind, uh, because there's statistics, just can you also tell us how many babies are actually born each year to older women, women who are over 40? 
Sure. So the, the two parts of the website have different age cutoffs. So the IVF um, success estimator, where which is a, the individual calculator, cuts off at 45 for women. And the clinic success rates cuts off of, at 42, where we're comparing the success rates across clinics. Um, and the reason for that is the same. We have to have this, enough data to provide reliable estimates. Um, and if you think about it, when we're just looking at an individual clinic, they have a lot less um, available cycles for us to analyse than, than the whole national uh, data that we have for the estimator, hence why the cutoffs are a bit different. Um, but look, you're right, one in four women that, that have IVF in Australia are aged over the age of 40. So that, that's, you know, a big a group of women seeking IVF treatment. Um, the average age of women using their own eggs is about 36, but those using donor eggs is about 40. Of the babies that are born in Australia through IVF, there's about 14,000 babies born every year. About 2,400 of those are born to women aged over 40. So that's about 17% of babies are born to women over 40. So you're absolutely right. This is a, a really important group of women. Um, the, the problem or one of the issues is uh, that, that, and Peter could talk to this much better than I can, but why, if you're using your own eggs, once you hit your later reproductive years, years over say 35 and above, your chances of success unfortunately go down quite steeply and quite quickly. And that can be quite quite distressing to see on, on when you put in your individual um, um, variables and you and you have an estimate. Um, so, for example, if I put into the estimator that I'm 40 years of age and I'm having my first cycle and my partner's 40, I'll have a 16% chance in my first cycle. But then if I put in the, the same information just two years later, it goes down to 7%, all other things being even. So that's a real, really quite significant drop if you're using your own eggs um, just in a two-year period. And we've listened to, to some feedback we've got on the website that when people do see that, those lower estimates, um, even though we, we make a, a, a great effort to say, please speak to your fertility clinician, we're also now going to put some extra links on the website for people to get have access to, to counselling or, or advice of how to support them when they um, get an estimate that's lower than they were hoping for. That, that's reassuring. Uh, Ella, what do you think of that? I think it's a positive step forward to provide links for additional help you know, especially if someone is distressed about their results. But I celebrate every day when someone over 40 has a positive result. You know, they are a part of the 17% of babies being born to women over 40. And yes, look, I understand the stats, but I have to say that this is a tool. It's not the final call on whether I'm going to have a child. And like many women, I want hope that I'm part of the 17%. We do, absolutely. Every patient out there still has a, a hope to have that child of their own. And I think no one disagrees. We all appreciate that 
the older you get, the harder it's going to be to fall pregnant, certainly naturally, and IVF is no magic bullet, no magic treatment. But Peter, I have a question for you. Why do some older women seem to beat the odds? And how should women interpret the results on the site for themselves, particularly when they're older? I see many women in their mid early to mid-40s who come for help with their fertility, most commonly because they've just met someone that they're ready to have a family with rather than they've artificially delayed anything. And it's always a very difficult conversation. The hard facts, as Ella has alluded, are bitter and tough and really confronting. And as a doctor, when I see a patient in this situation, I try to provide a, a kind and supportive environment for their decision making. But I do think that having access to the hard facts paints a picture of reality, uh, which as a doctor, I can then work around and provide support and individualize the advice. But it's much harder without those hard facts. And one of the great concerns about fertility specialists has been that we've painted an unduly rosy picture of things. And I think that it is useful to have this hard evidence available so that we as doctors and as counsellors can provide the support and and gentle advice that, that women seeking help with their families at that stage in their lives do need. Yes, I, I can appreciate that you know, the hard data makes it easier to have what can be a difficult conversation. But some people are successful and there's some reasons for that. Uh, what, what sort of factors tend to play into uh, an older person um, having the potential for success? I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that 2% is not zero. Exactly. And that people will still have babies at that age. There is still hope. Um, it, it is generally easier for a woman in her early 40s to have a baby if she's already had one. We mm. know that, that the majority of babies that occur naturally at that age are not first babies, they're second, third or subsequent babies. It's also the case that trying naturally can work at any stage and that someone who's only been trying for a short time with their partner will have a better chance of success than yeah. somebody who's already been trying for many years without any success. So it's important to bear those factors into the discussion as well. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving us a, a little hope that those people who are um, embarking on their journey or, or looking to expand their family older in life uh, still have some hope, but it sounds like, again, that's a discussion to have beyond using the tool. It's to have a discussion with your fertility specialist. And, Marie, if I can just say, just remembering that the, the estimate is based on a woman using her own eggs. Um, so um, that's, some, you know, the, the possibility of perhaps using donor eggs would be something that they could speak to their fertility clinician about. You make an excellent point there, Georgina. And as you said earlier, when there's even more data available on the use of donor yes. eggs, we'll see that included in the tool in future years, not straight away, but in the years ahead. Well, we've been talking about older women, but let's talk about older data. It's interesting that it's 2021, yet the data on the site is from 2017. Why is that, Georgina? Yes, it is from 2017, um, but it's also from 2018. We always report on two years of data and we report 
that data in different ways to provide different pieces of information. But we report live birth rates. And as everybody would understand, it takes around nine months to have a baby. So we have to wait for all the outcomes of the treatments from previous years, from 2017 and 18, to, to play their way through to us having the live birth rate data. And then we only collect data from clinics once a year. And so by the time we collect that data, validate it carefully, and then um, put it in a state that's ready for publication on the website, that does take us a few years. Okay. Uh, perhaps if I just distill that down then, we had people being treated in 2017 and 18, and uh, you follow them for like up to three cycles. Uh, the people at the end of 2018 who were fortunate enough to get pregnant, we have to wait for that very last group of pregnancies to to play out and have those babies later in 2019. And then that data didn't get submitted and analysed until really into 2020. And of course, this is the first time the site's been issued, which is why we're not seeing it till February 2021. Correct? Yes, so that's exactly All right. That's right. good. But I understand that we are going to see some other um, data being introduced in the next iteration or in future years to do with pregnancy. Peter, could you explain, uh, really, you have to be pregnant to have a baby. What, what's the difference in reporting on pregnancies versus live birth? The advantage of live birth is there's no doubt at all that a live birth has taken place. When you look at earlier indicators, it's harder to get hard endpoints. So we've settled on using a thing called a clinical pregnancy. And a clinical pregnancy is a pregnancy that's got far enough to be visible in ultrasound or to be an ectopic pregnancy. So it's a real pregnancy. It's not just a positive blood test or a positive urine test that can disappear quickly. This will give us the advantage that we will be able to provide more contemporary data for consumers. So as well as looking at the live birth, which is really what is important for patients, we'll also be able to provide a new figure, which includes the clinical pregnancy rate for a more recent year. Because we're all very conscious of the fact that, that in 2021, we're talking about data sets from 2017 and 2018, and the unavoidability of doing that for a live birth. But with clinical pregnancy rates, we will be able to provide more up-to-date data, but it will not be as reliable as a live birth because a live birth is ultimately what a woman is looking for from all of this. Absolutely. We all want to have that baby in our arms, but it will be encouraging to know what the pregnancy rate is, uh, given that that's obviously the, the key first step towards having that live baby. Well, look, we've covered... So, Marie Yes, Georgina, please add to that. Yes, so I was going to say, so, so in 2022, we will be reporting on clinical pregnancy rates from 2021. So we will be providing more um, contemporary information, as Peter said. Okay, well, that really is a good segue into my final wrap-up here, and that is we've covered lifestyle factors, we've covered age, the different types of people seeking IVF, and just most recently, uh, getting a better understanding of the timing of the data collected versus the timing of when it's reported. So I understand that the website will see a further update 
later this year. Georgina, can you tell us when will be this next update and, and what can we see, what will we see that's different from the website that we're seeing today? So in September this year, it'll be planned that we will update the existing measures on the clinical success rate component of the website. And that will be um, the existing measures for 2018 and 2019 data. Then in 2022, um, we will be updating the website with clinical pregnancy rates for the clinic success rates. Um, in terms of the estimator and, and providing more data for that, I don't believe that we we have to we have to work with what the data tells us to make sure we have reliable data and we won't be putting up any data that's not reliable. So we anticipate that being more like late 2022-23 before we introduce new items into the estimator. Well, it's great to hear that we're going to see these um, valuable changes occurring on the site in the coming years, Georgina. Peter, how would you advise your patients to use the site today and what they could expect in the future? I think I would advise my patients to use this as a very valuable resource for the, their picture in general. But it's also very important that they talk to their specialist and go through their individual case because there are many factors in a woman's fertility that cannot be captured by general data sets such as this. And their own doctor will be able to advise them about the applicability of these data to their own particular case and to put it in context that despite low numbers, babies are still born in, in difficult circumstances and high numbers are not a guarantee of success. And it's very important that each patient discusses this with their doctor and gets proper advice about their own individual case. I, I can't agree anymore because we've always said we're individuals, we're not a statistic and it's understandable that a site like your IVF success is driven by the statistics, but we shouldn't just rely on the output of it on its own. And having that discussion, not only with the fertility clinician, but also particularly when we're concerned about the results, uh, having a, a chat with the counsellor can also be helpful. So Ella, what's your feeling about the current website and the future developments that we've discussed on this podcast today? I'm, I'm really excited because it's a great tool, especially if you're going through IVF for the first time, because there is so much conflicting information out there that it can confuse someone. It's a tool that I wish I had the first time around, and I probably wouldn't have spent six months researching clinics. Now, this site gives detailed information on terminology and what to expect. It gives the user the ability to make a decision and not just rely on, for look, for example, a GP to choose the clinic for you because it gives the clinic data. And we've also heard from Georgina and Peter about feedback. They have listened to the users and made revisions to the site, which is fantastic. It shows that the website is for the consumer. You're listening and making necessary changes so that it will benefit the user experience. Absolutely. I think it is very exciting that patients will continue to have input into the refinements to the site and that we can look forward to uh, bigger and better things in the years ahead. Well, this brings us to a close to this podcast, the first of, of several that we'll have over the course of the year as people become more familiar with 
your IVF success as a valuable tool on their IVF journey. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our expert guests. We've had Professor Georgina Chambers from the University of New South Wales. We've had Professor Peter Illingworth, a clinical fertility specialist. And we've had Ella Mannix representing patients as we discuss your IVF success. If you haven't had a chance to really explore the site, take that opportunity to do so and know that your feedback is being monitored across the airwaves uh, online as we seek to get people's input for future developments. We look forward to having you on a future podcast. Look forward to your contributions. Thank you. That was a terrific discussion about the UIVF Success website. Thank you again, Georgina, Peter and Ella. We're looking forward to future discussions at the upcoming All About Fertility Expo on Saturday the 26th of June. Access is particularly excited to be hosting a couch time session at the Expo where we'll be able to share more insights on your IVF success. In the meantime, check out Access Australia's fact sheet on how to find an IVF clinic and questions you can ask your doctor and particularly around what you've learned about the Your IVF Success website. Ella, any final thoughts? I think a live session where attendees are able to direct their questions at the experts is such a great opportunity. It's going to be great. So if you go to the show notes, you'll find the details for Your IVF Success website as well as Access Australia's link to their resources in the show notes. Now, everyone, don't forget to register for this free event, which is happening on the 26th of June. All the details, again, will be in the show notes for you to register. Now, Marie, thank you so much for coming on and doing this takeover. I thoroughly enjoyed myself, and I really look forward to doing a few more podcasts with you. Me too. Look forward to it, Ella. Thanks again. Take care.